hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcasts. And also interviews with comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folk. And now, here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark Hershaw. Mark Hello, listener. As our esteemed booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, says, I am Mark Hershon, freshly returned from taking my soundcaster loyalty oath and completing all the required tests and registration renewals as a soundcaster in good standing. You won't hear a lot of us talking about this process, mostly because we sign a variety of non-disclosure agreements and violating said agreements can result in having our soundcaster licenses yanked and our shows shut down. But I'm not afraid. You deserve to know about the rigorous training and testing that lies behind so many of the soundcasts you enjoy. The officers of the governing body which oversees all of this, the Soundcasters Union of America, think they actually control what the members can say and do in this medium, but they really can't. The power is ultimately in your hands, or rather, your ears. What content you subscribe to and listen to. When we mention that we'd like to have you rate and review Suckatash over on Apple or Google Podcasts, say, we're actually pleading for your help. Without a significant number of five-star ratings, along with heartfelt and sincere reviews, the SUA has the authority to first issue warnings to member soundcasts that fall beneath the quotas and then, eventually, eliminate them entirely. I'd rather have you know this so you can make an informed decision about what you listen to and what you rate and review so you can do so responsibly. Am I afraid that the SUA will try to silence me or suspend succotash because I'm telling the truth? Well, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little concerned. We are currently experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We are currently experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Hey, 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 don't jump to the next show in your queue. I'm back and everything is fine. Better than fine, actually. I am Mark Hershon. This is episode 293 of Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast. Between myself and your every other weekly co-host, Tyson Saner, we usually feature clips from comedy soundcast to help you discover new and exciting shows to check out. But February seems to be chat month. Yeah. My last show, Epi 291, I spoke with Matt Knudsen about running his upcoming 10th and final L.A. Marathon to help raise money for St. Jude Children's Hospital. I also talked to J. Keith Van Stratton about the live streaming edition of his show, Go Fact Yourself, that uh, happened just last week. And the podcast version will be coming up next week. Then just last week, Tyson interviewed J. Elvis Weinstein writer, comedian, actor, and a whole lot more. You can still catch that show, Epi 292, wherever fine soundcasts are streamed and or downloaded, including Stitcher, Apple or Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Audible, Podbay, or our very own home site, Succotash Show, 
Comedy.com. This week, I'm talking to a buddy from the comedy boom days on the San Francisco comedy scene, Tim Bedore. Tim was a radio announcer and personality for a long time, before and during his stand-up days, and he's been running a soundcast for the past handful of years called An Agnostic's Guide to Heaven. We talk about all of that and more besides in this episode, all of which is brought to you by Henderson's Pants' new Poncho Pants, the handy rain gear to cover your rear. To get into this, I'm going to kick it off with a clip from Tim's Soundcast. He's talking about kids, participation trophies, and pets. Then we'll take a moment to hear from Henderson's Pants. And then I will slide right into my conversation with Tim Bedore. My daughter got a trophy when she was five for playing on a soccer team that went 0-10 and and didn't score a single goal all season, and the trophy she got for that was taller than her. Why do we reward sucky behavior? Those kids sucked at soccer, and when we reward total failure that early in life, that means the rest of their lives, it's all downhill from there with endless dissatisfaction from unmet, unrealistic emotional needs, and thus anxiety. The other cause of their anxiety of not being assertive, having trouble making decisions, stems from growing up in a world where mostly sunny is somehow different than partly cloudy. All their lives, they've heard TV weather people say, it's going to be mostly sunny today and partly cloudy tomorrow. How can you have direction and certainty in a world like that? The building my daughter lived in allowed cats, small dogs, and at least one pig. But by allowing a pig, how can there be future limits on what other animals future tenants consider to be their comfort pet? By rejecting any species of comfort pet, you will be producing the very anxiety their comfort pony is there to reduce. On the other hand, if you force kids to live with animals they don't want to live with, you will produce in them, guess what, I'm scratching my chin for a second here thinking, you're going to produce anxiety. Now they need a comfort pet. You're not living in a college dorm, you're living in a zoo. And I predict one day a college student will come back from class and hear their roommate say, oh, I'm so sorry, but my comfort coyote just ate your comfort pig. So no more participation trophies. Let's not give our young people the idea that life is going to be good. Life is just hard, so don't expect much else, and then you die. And if that is how we all grow up, we're all in it together. Faith in a positive future confidence that you have what it takes only sets you up for misery when reality strikes. Let's bring ourselves back together as one, see ourselves as part of the same miserable whole by getting rid of participation trophies, and let's stick with mostly sunny in our weather forecasts. Either partly cloudy or mostly sunny, but not both. Okay, let's get to an email I got a few weeks ago, and I read this just to prove I have a knack for being a life coach, a therapist. Yes, I have the education, the psych minor, but I was just blessed with a natural aptitude for human psychology. Here's the email. Hey, Tim. Over the past few months, I've had this weird dream where I get a chance to play drums, 
for the Beatles. The Fab Four are recording their next album, Abbey Road, but Ringo was making a movie in Casablanca and kind of quit the group. And there I am at EMI Studios with John, Paul, and George. They notice me drumming with my hands on the table and say, get behind the drum kit. We think you can save us. Oh my God, I can save the Beatles? How cool would that be? I sit down behind Ringo's famous kit, all excited and a little nervous because I don't play drums. In fact, I've never even played one drum, let alone drums. I get behind Ringo's kit, but instead of drumsticks, Mal Evans, their roadie, hands me two Q-tips. Those earwax Q-tips. Tim, I was so frustrated. Q-tips are too short to drum with. Paul does his famous count-off, one, two, three, four, and the three of them bust into I saw her standing there, and I sounded awful. Tim, why do I keep having these dreams? And it's signed, Al Bakuber, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Just to be as thorough as I can be, because I take my work seriously as a life coach, I try drumming with Q-tips, and this is what it sounds like. Do you hear that? Can you hear that? Drumming with Q-tips does not work, especially with electric guitars. Continuing with my research, I also looked up Al Bakuber of Green Bay, Wisconsin, found out from his social media postings and profiles, pictures, things he said, Al is a huge Green Bay Packer fan. According to his posts, Al was decimated when the Packers lost to the 49ers in the playoffs a few weeks ago. They lost in the first round, and now Aaron Rodgers, their quarterback, is building a house in Nashville, probably leaving the team. And from his posts, you can see Al is upset, has lots of anxiety over this. And that is why he's having what are called frustration dreams. Obviously, the solution to this problem is Aaron Rodgers... You have to stay in Green Bay. Return one more year, at least one more. So many people are having nightmares because you're leaving. Do the world, or at least Packer fans, a favor and stay put. Hello, friends. Whether you are a believer or not in all of this global climate change malarkey, there's no denying that the world's weather has taken on an odd end-of-days look and feel. A day that's bright and balmy one moment can change into a dark and stormy with no warning at all. Which is why the design team at Henderson's Pants has come up with a new exciting breakthrough. Poncho pants. Yes, for the first time in trouser history, or trousery as we like to say, you can own a stylish pair of pants fit for any business meeting or social occasion, which is also equipped with a sturdy pullover poncho that not only comes with a hood, but is 100% waterproof to boot. The poncho, super thin and made of high-density mylar, is compressed using Henderson's patented microfold technology and tucked into the waistband of the pants. Now, at the first drop of moisture, simply reach behind your own back like this, and with a good stiff yank on the poncho, as if giving yourself, how, a Melvin or a wedgie? Well, you unfurl the garment over, this hurts, un sorry, unfurl the garment over your head and down in front of yourself. You'll be as right as rain and dry as a bone, ready to get on with the business at hand. Henderson's Poncho Pants are perfect for both men and women. Be sure to check out our other foul weather garments, the Skinny Jean Serape, the Coverall Cords, and our Denim and Duster Western Combo. Originally designed for Neil Sedaka, Gene Kelly, Credence Clearwater Revival, and anyone else who gets those references, <laughs> Henderson's Poncho, Poncho Pants Pants. are available anywhere cold fronts and warm fronts like to smack into each other. That's Henderson's, dressing on the left and on the right since 1837 because we're just that big. And now back to Sackatash.
So Tim Bador, how are you? You know, uh, surviving, um, living in Minnesota, Minneapolis, we got a pandemic and it's about 50 mile per hour winds and uh, near, <laughs> near zero, you know. Wow. So, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the stock answer to how, how are you doing these days is doing fine considering. Considering <laughs> it is, it's, and it's going to be interesting. I think what happens post pandemic when people get out, mm-hmm. uh, are people going to go nuts? Is it going to be, you know, <laughs> fighting, drinking, or will they not go out? Cause they, like staying home and found out they have fewer hangovers and more money. So I, I was at a, I was at the, uh, the Metreon last night to see a movie. Uh, and it was very, very vacant. Yeah. Uh, they just uh, California in a number of cities has dropped their mask mandate. So technically if you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask indoors. Uh, most people had masks on. I was being a rebel and not wearing a mask and just the looks you get. Yeah. Uh, I literally, one of the guys that I was at the movie with said uh, he was so busy. He didn't realize that they'd uh, stopped doing the mask mandate two days ago. He said, I didn't even hear about that. Right. I was at a movie theater a week or so ago to see the French dispatch before it left um, theaters because I wanted to see it in the theater. And there were maybe eight people in a 750 seat theater, yeah. all clumped together. It was not a thing. <laughs> now everybody's wearing masks because we have not uh, dropped the mandate. But it was so. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, is there not anywhere else that is a good spot where all you know eight people clumped together? Yeah, we don't have herd immunity, but we do still have herd mentality. <laughs> yes, herd need. <laughs> Just want to bond. You and I have uh, recently sort of gotten back in contact uh, via a uh, an online trivia yeah. game between a number of friends in the comedy community, which has been fun. But uh, yeah, fun, yeah. I wanted wanted to have you on because of your uh, your soundcast, which we call them. It's what we refer to them here on Suckatash as really okay podcasts. I like that. I like that better. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, yeah. you, you do the agnostics and agnostics guide to heaven. Yes, I do. And yes, uh, I do. how we've featured, uh, I believe we've featured a clip here before. I think when you were first starting out, I think I've mentioned it at least once in my uh, also listening section in the, the vulture reviews. But for those folks unfamiliar with an, an agnostics guide to heaven, what uh, what is it that the show talks about? What do you do? You know, it's kind of uh, th- there was a very specific jumping on point for me to do this. I used to uh, do a weekly uh, commentary on the Bob and Tom syndicated morning show across the country. It was called Vague but True. So I've just used to for decades writing essays, and I just happened to like doing it. I was thinking about, should I be doing a soundcast or a podcast? Um, You know, too many people have jumped in. And mostly when comics do it is talking with other people. Yeah. So could you do a one person talking thing? But I just saw like writing essays and then stories that I was thinking about it. And then when, when Robin Williams died 
And I started thinking about all those years ago when he was around in San Francisco doing all those sets. Yeah. And why was a famous superstar out doing open mics with us? <laughs> Which is an odd, when you think of it, and I'm just fascinated by this. How did open micers follow Robin? <laughs> they, they were not happy. You know, it, it's just, it was so... And Dana and everybody else that was there in the San Francisco scene. Yeah. So then you hear he's got depression and anxiety. And I think I think the, one of the reasons why he did so many sets was that he was kind of medicating. If you've ever talked to anybody, a comic who has depression, they say that's the only time of the day yeah. they feel good. That's true. That's, is that when is they're true. on stage. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'm thinking, well, why, you know, what's the driver for me? And I've always talked about growing up Catholic and, and mocked it and whatever. But I finally started thinking, you know, I, I wasn't bullied as a kid. But you know who was my bully? The church. Oh. The Catholic church made me feel like I was going to hell <laughs> just for how I thought. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't buy or I, I didn't feel what everybody else was feeling. I just couldn't, even as a six-year-old, mm. could not feel what they were feeling from First Communion and from, you know, the Stations of the Cross and all that stuff. So I had all these stories and all this, I still like to get back at them, just like they were, you know, the playground bully. <laughs> so that was the jumping on point. I had okay. all these stories okay. I wanted to tell. And I got those, you know, out of the way, there's still a lot of religious stuff where it's just things I want to think about and comment on. Yeah. But it's a lot of stories that I just carry around in my head. And this is the place I put them out. If there's a message or a mock message, or, you know, if you're mock life coaching or spiritual gurus, um, I haven't run out yet. I'm, I'm working on episode 70 now, and I think it's the best one so far. Of course, I think that every time. But until then, I start recording and go, oh, Jesus, uh, <laughs> why did I do this? But yeah, it's just, uh, it's something I think you've got to do if you're a creative person. You can't stop being creative. If you do, you're, you're losing too much. And yeah. so during this pandemic, you know, you're not out. You're not on the radio. You're not out on stage, whatever. And so this has been a great outlet. I've, I've had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you write regularly, you're going to get better at writing regularly. Yeah. I mean, like stand up, it's it's the one of the only mediums where you have control. Yes. If you're producing your own show, performing your own show, and don't really care if you get sponsors like, we at Sucker yeah. do not yeah. have any sponsors, then it's, it's great. It's great. Yes. And it, you know, I, I started out in radio back in college. And then when I was in San Francisco, when we first met, I was definitely still yeah. in radio and it is, it's a special medium. It's going away. Uh, they, they blew up their business. They were stupid, but podcasting is or soundcasting is as popular as it is because it's still audio is still such a potent medium you get yeah. to say you you can say something that triggers a visual better than any visual and 
you can do one-to-one, even though you're talking to thousands of people, it's, it's very much a one-to-one conversation, which TV typically isn't and stand-up typically isn't right. So soundcasting can get you there. Right. And what it, what it gains over radio is because I did, I did my time behind the mic is you are not the master of your own domain, the master of your ship. I was on, at one point I was doing a show midnight to 6 a.m. up in Paradise, California. And it turns out that the general manager of the station uh, was an insomniac. So I couldn't even get away from <laughs> the the leader of the pack in the middle of the night. He was listening to my show and I would come into, I'd come in to do my show and I would play novelty records a lot of times and they were gone. I go, where's, where's, I'd ask the program director as a buddy of mine, hey, where's my thing? I was playing that record. He goes, uh, yeah, the general manager didn't like it. <laughs> Came in and pulled it. Hotline rings at 3.30 in the yes. morning. I don't like that. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, there's, there's that element of the, the freedom aspect of it. Um, there's an interesting thing, and I think I probably bored listeners to this show with this, this sort of comparison. And being a radio guy for a long time, you probably remember or know about sort of the genesis of radio when there was a time when everyone, like podcasting, everyone had a radio station mm-hmm. in their basement yeah. and they could broadcast a half a mile or a mile. Yeah. yeah. And it was very much a very similar kind of medium in that regard anyway, starting out. And then as the bigger stations came into being, the FCC was developed and started like kicking all those little small potatoes to the curb because it's like, oh, you can't be broadcasting on this, on this band. We've right. got to have some structure here, for God's sakes. And, the fright- and, and we've got to figure out a way to make money off of it. Radio is making a last-ditch effort at, at staying above ground. Mm. They're trying to turn podcasting into the DVR for radio. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You can get, if you missed the show this afternoon, you didn't hear it live, you can hear it anytime you want. Yeah. And they also hear... Uh, in Minneapolis, there's, uh, you know, some of the more aggressive stations. They're actually, <laughs> these poor bastards, they're, they have to do their show and they have to prepare for it. Uh, they put a lot of work in. You can hear it. And then they have to do a separate podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> Literally have to do a separate hour or so that's a little spicier. Yeah. I mean, oh, they're funny. working these people to death. Yeah. there's And there's a hybrid model where. Uh, there was a show I used to follow out of England and uh, you could tell it was their radio show, but they weren't allowed to play any of the music because of music license. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. they'd go, we'll be back right after this. And they, they would literally introduce a song and you would hear the first seven or eight bars. And then they were on to the next thing. It's like, that was weird. What was that? Oh, yeah. right. They can't do that which is interesting. So let's, let's talk a little bit about since, uh, I mean, since you were in, in the radio biz, how did you, how'd you get started doing that? And how long ago was that? Uh, well, very long. Um, my older brother, uh, just fell in love. We we both, you know, loved Carson Mm. and every, you know, bit about show business entertainment. I mean, just everything. And, he got into college radio and started working locally. He was very good, actually. 
And then I just followed him. I just went to the same college, worked at the same college radio station. And what was great about that was this is, you know, not a class. You learn way more doing than anybody's going to ever tell you about anything. So whether it's stand up or improv or radio, I spent most of my waking hours at that college radio station. And by the time I was done, I was actually okay at it. I never would have gotten into stand-up had it not been for um, radio uh, clubs saying, would you like our comic to come on? And why don't you come out and host the show? Mm. And that's how I got into it. Um, but uh, if it hadn't been for that, I probably never would have done stand-up and been too scared, too shy. But yeah, radio was just the only way in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, you were going to get anywhere near entertainment because that was it. There, you know, there was only radio. Interesting. Interesting. So, so where'd you start? You start out in radio in school and then where did you move to uh, from there? After college, I went to Ventura, California, uh, worked for, and this set up my radio experience. I talked to this guy. He was a LA radio vet wants to bring me out to do mornings. He had all these LA radio veterans doing middays, afternoons, nights. Mm. He had a news staff. He had a sales staff ready to go. Was going to take on the Los Angeles radio stations. They had a big consultancy that was going to consult them. He just needed a young morning guy. I got out there. I swear to God, it was him, me, and a guy he had walked in off the street the day before. And that was it. He had lied about everything. And he had ringworm. He had weeping <laughs> sores, oozing weeping sores on his face. And so you couldn't even look him in the face and argue because he, he would dab with Kleenex at these oh. oozing sores. It was just, welcome to radio. <laughs> he, did, he, he actually did have a face for radio. Yes, he did. Absolutely did. Um, so, and then I, I, that he blew up the two of us uh, that were on the air after seven months, just a carnival barker, lower level person. Um, I ended up in LA briefly working for an ad agency. Um, then went up to Sacramento and radio started doing some stand up at the club that was opening there met Bob Saget and, and Gary and Jerry and Jay and all the people that yeah. were the headliners of the time. You got to work with those guys. I mean, yeah. and you got to hang out and go to the comedy condo and sit and talk. And then Houston. And I was then doing full-time stand-up there, met Bill Hicks and, you know, a bunch of great people there. And then San Francisco where we met and, Comedy was just exploding at yeah. that time. And I just thought, this is more fun than not radio as a thing to do, but as a business. Believe it or not, comedy club owners were more credible, <laughs> honest, and decent <laughs> than radio management. That's true. I When I was working at, at KSFO, uh, I was... Um, I was a producer uh, and I remember a story. I, I can't remember what I think it was a station in New York and they were like a jazz station or something. And while the morning guy was on the air, 
they fired everyone else and they took all the jazz records in the entire station out while he was mm-hmm. on the air and yeah. replaced, re- replaced them all with whatever the new format of music was. It's, it's the most bizarre and nobody would believe it. The most bizarre business. I worked at a station in Houston, which is top 10 market, major market. And the program director had become addicted to cocaine <laughs> and hired a cocaine dealer who had no radio experience at all as the head sales manager. Oh. Why? Because he could get free cocaine. And he was bumping commercials of competitors <laughs> off the air because there was a big rock club there that was a drug money laundromat. And so he oh. was, and this is, I mean, literally contracts are signed and they've paid for ads to be on the air and he's pushing them off, crossing them off on the program. I mean, it was just, just bizarre. And it's, you know, one of the top rated stations in the, in the city. The funny parallel is that there, there are just as many interesting sort of character stories in radio as there are in comedy. I oh. mean, we all know the club owner that paid in cocaine. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, uh, I, I worked, I don't know if you remember uh, radio guy, Bobby Dale. Yeah. Remember the San name. Francisco. He, yeah. he, when I started at KSFO, I was a music librarian's assistant and I'm working in the library one day and it's, it's all LPs, right? Mm-hmm. He comes in, he'd been doing like the overnight shift or something. So it's first thing in the morning and, there was there was a tablet on the table, a pill of some sort. And he goes, what is that? I go, it's been there since I got here this morning. He just took it and his <laughs> hand and he just took it. He just swallowed. It. He goes, I'll let you know what happens. And he turned and he walked out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I swear to you, there's less of this bizarre character thing in stand up than radio. I mean, the radio people, it was like the carnies have come to town and yes, they have a suit, but they are just circus geeks. That's it. No, I mean, comedy club owners, in my belief, at least really liked comedy. I don't know if the radio people, I mean, I think there was a time, I mean, yeah, you know, there was, yeah. KS, you know, KSFO was part of Golden West Broadcasters. And, you know, I literally got to meet Gene Autry yeah. one day who, you know, before, you know, he died and his whole thing had become completely corporate. He was still the owner of the radio station. Right. And it was just like, wow, I'm meeting Gene Autry. Yeah. And this is a guy who started our station because he liked radio. Right. There were those people and I got to work for a few of them. But literally, even though when I first got to San Francisco, the radio station I was at was called The Quake. And the people that were running it were really good broadcasters, really good broadcasters from Chicago. And they'd had a lot of big success there, ran two of the biggest FM stations there. Unfortunately, the majority owner was a judge from New Jersey. And therein lies the problem, the the (laughs) credibility. In fact, the minority owners thought, you can't be a judge in New Jersey without being crooked. And that's who we're in bed with. And he was running the station and literally just because he had some other business that needed our, our cash, took all the money out of the Quakes bank accounts and the management did not tell management. Of course not. So they're writing checks 
that and big checks <laughs> that are bouncing all oh, over. Oh and, and we were behind the eight ball immediately. He owned the station and knew. Yes. This was screwing oh. the pooch. Oh my God. <laughs> so uh, at what point did you segue or did you ever completely leave radio for comedy? Um, you know, no. Um, I love, I, I do love radio. It, it just, I do love the medium. I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, I got down to LA, Gina Michelini, who you may remember from KML in San Francisco, was then doing Afternoons, big station in Los Angeles, KLOS. He hired me to do a weekly feature, Vague But True, for him for years. It was a wonderful mm. opportunity. Then I did commentaries for Marketplace, which is a public radio program for years. Then in the 2000s, I was on Bob and Tom every week via an ISDN box, which is an amazing piece of equipment that broadcast quality from your house on a phone line. Yeah. Which is really cool. And I did that for 13 years every week coming up with, you know, a three or four minute piece to do. And that really was a, a just a wonderful thing uh, for standup because in these 150, 60 markets, you were on every week, Gosh. number one, but, and this is the, one of the more curious things about the Bob and Tom show. If a bit that a comic did in the studio, that was either a bit or panel, just a conversation or one of my bits, uh, Vague Trues worked well. They repeated it for years. Oh, played it over and over again. <laughs> now, when you went out to do a show and we were doing shows on the Bob and Tom tour mm. in big, th you know, theaters that had up to 2,500 people. We were selling out some big theaters. Yeah. They wanted to hear that bit word for word, <laughs> which I don't think, you know, I wouldn't, I would have guessed the opposite. You could not do word for word. They know the punchlines. Yeah. How is that even going to work? But they wanted it word for word so you could you know in these markets we were known the comics that were on uh regularly were known so it was you know it got to the point where we were working in theaters and there was a deli platter backstage and that's when you know you've at least creeped into a teeny little bit of success <laughs> when you are working somewhere and they ask you what you want backstage even yes. though I was one of four or five, it wasn't just me. Yeah. But there were there was salami and crackers. <laughs> I've made it, baby. I've arrived. <laughs> At least I got somewhere. That's fantastic. So you know it's kind of funny about that thing about wanting to hear the bits because you know, usually, you know, musicians a lot of times people just want to hear the hits, right? They want yes. to hear the songs they know. But there's this idea in comedy, particularly with comedy bookers and promoters that if you're coming back through you better have 45 new minutes right you better but the audience is an animal that will bring their friends because they go oh this guy does this great bit yeah and you're not doing the great bit anymore because they said no because i mean i mean i've seen that happen with people like brian regan and you know dana carvey and all these people that people come because they want to hear that bit and of, yes. course, of course, there are and comics out there 
who didn't worry about changing their acts. Oh, no, no, we could name names. Um, yeah, exactly. But they, I, uh, thankfully, it's it. I think comedy works a bit like trivia mm. where you may know, for example, right now, I'm going to tell you that the last guy to legally steal first base in Major League Baseball was named Germany Schaefer. Now, in a month, you'll remember I told you that, but you will not remember Germany Schaefer. So if you come back to a club in 12 months, thank God they have, they know that you're going to do this bit, but they don't know the punchline until you tell it that. Yes, that's right. And and then they, then they, then they laugh and cheer because they know it. Yeah. It's like when you go to see a movie and people have seen five things in the trailer and they react much more than a lot yeah. of the rest of the movie. Cause they go, I know that piece. Yeah. I know that. No, it's very, I mean, if, if it didn't work that way, there'd be two comics working in America, <laughs> people that can write that much and remember that much. That's yeah. the other, that's the skill I never had was to be able to, you know, if you changed eight words in a bit that night to have those eight words exactly in your brain and come out, yeah. that is a tremendous skill that some people just have. Yeah. Well, some people, I mean, really work at honing that because they believe yeah. that it's that combination of words told in that sequence. Right. It is the magic formula to get the best laugh. Seinfeld, oh, Larry Miller, yeah. people that, you know, they've crafted and they'll do bits for years and years, crafting and crafting and changing things out, you know? Right. Um, so you're right. And then there's the people that kind of more wing it and just kind of like, I'm going to do the thing about the dog. And I know the general touch points of this piece and I've done it enough times that I know how part a connects to part B, but I'm not married to having to make sure the words all make sense. Cause you know, that bartender could turn the blender on right when we're about to hit that fourth word and uh, be completely lost. And, and would, um, that is the other way. There are people who cannot write that, that literally comics that cannot sit down and write. Yeah. And then there are other comics who crave the writing and, and looking at this and saying, you know, these 13 could be eight. And what if I goose this to that? Then you have to be able to put it in your head and get that exact wording out. Yeah. And that is another skill, but well, yeah. Well, I, I, I worked with Dana Carvey uh, at one point back in, I guess we started doing this around 2001 or two. Uh, he wanted to, get his act written and down because we've been writing a couple of things. He goes, Hey, mm -hmm. can you help me write down my act? Cause he would show me like this, you know, piece of yellow legal paper that just had bubbles and words in it. And he goes, I, I, this is my set. I go, well, what is it? Because I'm the only one that understands it. I don't, yeah. you know, uh, but I know what all the words are. Can we sit down? And so we, we wrote his whole act every bit he could think of. And it was like over a hundred and hundred pages. It was this, we called it the tome mm -hmm. and he started traveling with it. And after about three months of experimenting, doing it, he goes, I can't do this with this anymore. He said, I don't care. I don't read this thing. I said, he said, every time I try to go through this to remind myself of bits, I remember the bit, but there's so much, there's so many words in here that I don't need this. Right. It's all up here. And I thought maybe if I had it written out, it would be more organized, which it is, but that doesn't help me. 
You know, and that's how certain minds work. Um, you know, Will Durst told me something years ago because I was we were talking about this very topic that the rewrite is not, I think, the problem. It's the memorization of it. Mm. And he said what he does because, you know, he had very wordy. Yes new big chunks and i'm sitting there you know at the club here going to say hi and that i'm just amazed at this two and a half minute very word specific bing 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 thing that happens and i said how do you memorize that stuff and he said i record it mm-hmm. reading it off the page play it back listen to it five times it'll be in your head don't worry about it didn't work for me yeah but <laughs> what was does work for me so I did, I, I didn't, hadn't done any standup during COVID. Last December, I did the first two sets that I'd ever done since COVID started. And they were both headlining sets. So I had to do at least 45 in one night. Mm. And I was not in a panic, but half of me didn't even want to do it. And, <laughs> you know, I was really very convinced that it could not go very well i could get through it yeah and it might look reasonably professional but there would be a lot of awkward because i was looking at my notes i was looking at everything trying to put it back in my head and then close my eyes and see if i could get the words in my head and they weren't coming i started listening to old sets Mm. over and over Got on stage, I had notes, I had bullet points, and I told the audience, I'll be looking down. I haven't done this in 23 months. Just give me that much space. And it was, you know, as if I had been on stage all 23 months. It all came out. It all, I was, I was shocked that it worked as well as it did. That's great. And I think it was the listening. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the thing about the notes, and I think, I guess somebody who became kind of popular because that was probably Patton Oswald, you know, kind of one of the first alt comics they would, mm-hmm. he would go on stage with a notepad yeah. that made him an alt comic. And I think what it was, was I don't think the audience cares about those notes to them. It looks like, Oh, he's workshopping some new material. This is kind of fun. I'm part of the process now. Yes. And if you tell, I think a big thing for me was telling the audience so it doesn't feel like I'm cheating to look or they're going to wonder. Yes. And that liberated me. Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what Emo used to do? Uh, Emo Phillips, I one of the, the great writers. Yeah. Um, he would have, he would just tell the, the club or the theater to have four stools <laughs> and four gallon jugs of water <laughs> and put them on stage. Right. Yeah. Two to the left, two to the right of the mic. He would put his notes on the plastic jug. And then he would act like he didn't know which jug to drink from, which one. And he would go over (laughs) and, oh, and he would take a drink from that one and see the new bit or what order he wanted to go. That's fine. Um, There There was a comic, I forget who it was. You'll probably remember, I think it was someone in the city that would, he'd always had a bottle of beer. And he would peel the label off the beer, but leave the backing of the label and write his set lists on the backing of the bottle. That's so he, rude. So we'd have the bottle in his hand all, the, 
the whole time yeah. where he put it on a stool, but there was a set list always right in front of him. That is shrewd. You know what Shandling used to do? Hmm. He would come out with the yellow legal pad. He would tell people that he's going to work on some material, some new material. And he would go right off the bat. He'd look at the pad, put his finger at the top of the page, do an old bit. <laughs> Get a laugh. Oh. <laughs> he would look at another thing and he would do it old bit got a laugh so he's conditioned the audience that every time he goes to the pad it's good yeah <laughs> so then he starts doing the new stuff yes brilliant. and it was it just took that little bit of edge maybe for him off that you know this new stuff may not work as well now now i've conditioned them to think the pad is golden Yes. Yes. Everything works here. That's fantastic. I thought that was brilliant. That's great. Uh, for all of the sort of radio commentaries that you've done, has it or does it feed your stand-up? Do the oh, two yeah. things coexist? Both back and forth, um, without a doubt. Stuff I never would have come up with for stand-up because I was talking about something on marketplace that was economic driven a joke comes out because you're writing and then, Hey, that's a joke. <laughs> I can use that. Um, yeah, it, it definitely, it, it just worked that way. And I, I was not thinking it would ever work that way. I, I wasn't necessarily making these commentaries for stand-up reasons, but always, if you're writing and, and you're even moderately talented, funny jokes will appear. They just, you put your head in that space. Yeah. You know, for you improv guys, it would be on stage that right. the brain gets triggered. For shy people like me, it's it's the page. It's yeah. I, I ad lib on the page. Okay. Yeah, that makes screen. sense. That, that makes good sense. That makes good sense. Um, I don't want to don't want to keep you too long because it's probably dinner time there in Minneapolis. Uh it's it's cocktail time. Oh, co even more important. Yes. Um, but uh, it's it's been great catching up with you. I think we'll have to have you back. Tim Bedore, how can people find you and your show and your writings? It's called An Agnostic's Guide to Heaven. Um, lives in, but everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, my vague but true uh, webpage, which I put so much work into, was hijacked. And so I no longer have it. What? Yeah. Um, long story. I don't even know exactly what happened, but it's wow. not mine anymore. Um, I have the trademark, but the uh, all the material, and I put years of material into this wow. website. Yeah, it's gone. Um, Koreans, Russians, somebody took it. Wow. Uh, it, it doesn't exist. If you go to vaguebutrue.com, it'll be an ad for by, you know, uh, false fingernails or something. Wow. Yeah. It really broke my heart, but uh, yeah. Uh, and not an agnostic's guide to heaven. Very, I, I think it's the best stuff I've ever done compared uh, judging on a, a curve of me. Right. So. And no doubt available through most of the major distribution yes. points out there. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Tim, 
great talking to you. I will see you at the trivia match very soon, I'm sure. Germany Schaefer. Germany Schaefer. It's the only sports trivia I will ever know because I don't know anything about sports. So (laughs) Germany Schaefer. I will never forget it again. Fantastic. All right, my friend, have a great evening and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you so much. That was so nice catching up with Tim. Be sure to visit the blog entry for this episode at SuccotashShow.com, where you'll find links to his soundcast, his socials, and whatever else I've got links for. Before I bail, let's hit the tweet sack. Hey, Tweety, and see who's been generous enough to mention at Suckatash Show in their social media during the past week or so. Married, crazy, and podcasting. Salty Language Pod. I Shake My Head. Becca James. Shock Doc Podcast, Matt Knudsen, J. Keith Van Stratton, Brianna Weller, Michelle Weiscarver, Gary Olson, Misfit Scully, Combat Radio, Antisocial Show, Amazing Braino, Bill Maxey, Jeremy Alice, Nathan Betts, Bialza Bryce, <laughs> J. Elvis Weinstein, Matter Eater Lad, Chris Haas, Crimson DeMaio, Matt Crowley, Andy Kindler, Earn Digital Learning, Go Fact Yourself Podcast, David Spade, Amonis Franco, Dean Hagland, Phil Lernis, Amy Doubt, Snow White, Dave Bianchi, Let's Chat with Chris Revel, Weirdness HQ, Bernie and the Believers, John Peterson, Jordan Brady, The Sup Doc Podcast, The Multiverse of Badness, Chill Pack Hollywood, Paige Branson, who designed our Succotash logo, The D-Head Factor, Sherry M857, Panda Schwartz, Darcy Staniforth, Travis Clark, and Hunter Block. That's about it. Epi 293 is pretty much in the can. I might tack on a little extra chatter I had with Tim Bedore after the closing credits, but you can pretty much feel free to click off now if you've reached your destination, put in your miles, or whatever. Remember to hang back in this same feed next week for another edition of the show with Tyson. Will it be clips? Chat? We won't know until the episode drops next Tuesday at 12.01 a.m. Until then, get the COVID vaccine or booster if you haven't, wear a mask if you need to, try not to be such a dick to people, and remember, the next time you're filling your car with gas and the person at the next pump over asks if you've been listening to anything good lately, won't you please pass the succotash? You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy soundcast soundcast with your host, Mark Hershaw. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Rate us and review us at Apple and Google Podcasts. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com. On Stitcher. On iHeartRadio. On YouTube. On SoundCloud. And wherever fine soundcasts are streamed and or downloaded. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Suckatash Show. Like us on Facebook. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com. 
more. Call into the Succotash Skype line at our toll call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash you slash Succotash. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Succotash is executive produced by Mark Hershon. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Succotash goodbye. Thank you, Tim. That's fantastic. That was fun. Fun. Um, yeah. Any, any time. I mean, there's so many topics, you know, I talked to Larry um, regularly. I talked to Rick Reynolds. I mean, mm. there's just, it's interesting talking. I, not that you want to talk about the old days so much, but um, we went through some interesting things. <laughs> You know, it, it was a very interesting time it, that will not be repeated. No, uh, it's sort of like uh, uh, this, this slice of, well, if you look at every sort of generation of comedy, they all have kind of their unique elements to it. But that comedy wave, that boom starting in like the early eighties through the mid nineties is just like this rarefied thing, you know, where yes. you had, had these major names of people that got scooped up by television and then that made room for more people to get yeah. into the stratosphere, right? And then those people got scooped up and they they became writers for this that first wave of comics. I and I, I was gonna bring this up because I, I just have this feeling that it was such a cohesive scene, especially the four clubs in the city. You know, and, and Alex Bennett had a lot to do with popularizing comics as personalities versus. I'm always selling my jokes. Yeah, definitely. But there was such a, a vibe. And I think it was Robin that not only created a good bit of the business, but when you think of it, you know, because if Jeremy or Bobby or Dana were working or Paul or whomever, Goldthwait at a club, Robin might well show up. And yes. so people would, oh, if, you know, if Goldthwait's at a club, I'm going to go. Oh, yeah. So it was great for business. But I really think that the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday shows that open micers were in and you had to follow people. Typically, I don't remember a show ever falling apart because Robin was the eighth or ninth guy on and the audience got up and, and left after two hours. <laughs> Because, you know, we saw a major superstar and we've been here two hours. Yes. I don't remember that happening. And I believe it's because, and this, this may get fanciful, but he was such a kind person. Mm -hmm. The audience understood if they left and were lousy to the rest of the comics, he would be hurt and wouldn't come back. Interesting. The That's whole thing 
hinged on him being able to get in and get out without ruining open micers shouldn't be able to follow this guy, but it, it's not that you were that good. You just had an audience that was still giving and, and they he, were forgiving. And he would also kind of level the playing field for the next guy coming up. Cause he knew someone had to follow him mm-hmm. and he would either bring him up himself and, you know, it'd be somebody, a, a local. So Robin knew everybody to yeah. varying degrees. And it was like, Oh, he's a friend of Robin's. This is great. And then Robin would off he'd go and kind of segue into this guy's set. So you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That Robin, it was important to him not to poison the water hole. I think it was crucial. I mean, he could not have done it. If anytime a good audience got up and left halfway through, I mean, it just, it would have, I think hurt him so much that he could not have done it. This has been a Succotash Patch production.